Uh, Father in heaven, redeeming love. May that truly be the theme of our hearts, our souls, and our minds, God, each and every day until the day that you call us home. And as we gather together now as a church, as we sing out these incredible truths that point us to such redeeming love, such amazing grace that washes all of our sins away, God, we pray that we would once again be encouraged and inspired by those promises. God, that as we open up your holy word and your sacred text, God, that it would speak to us, that it would be moving and active and living, God, in a way that molds us and transforms us. And so we, we come now, God, to your word eagerly and expectantly to once again be changed and to be prompted into a greater courageous life, God, that allows us to glorify you because we know of all that has been done for us through Jesus. We thank you so much for this gift of grace. We ask that you'd fill us now, God, with your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, good morning, church. I hope everyone's doing well today. Ooh, that one's got an iPad on it. I'm going to leave that one alone. That, <laughs> that music stand. I'm going to keep that one right there. I'll use the stool today. Um, it's good to see everybody this morning. I uh, hope everyone's having a good Sunday afternoon uh, and Sunday morning. How about the weather, by the way? Can we get an amen for the weather and the rain and everything else? Uh, it's been a great couple of days. Uh, last week, we finished up our uh, Facing Doubts series. Thanks, Sarah. I wasn't sure if I could move that. Didn't know where to take it. Uh, last week, we finished our series on Facing Doubt and Holding Fast to the Anchor. And um, that series was something that really kind of originated from what we've been talking about throughout the whole year. We've, we've had this theme for the year of 2022 to really focus on what does it mean to live a renewed life. And we used Romans 12.1 as the introduction to that theme, uh, where we often talked about devotion, discernment, and delight, and have used the book of Romans as our guide to have that conversation. And when we got to Romans 7, uh, we talked about the war with the flesh, right, in that famous chapter that says, there are so many things that I, I don't want to do, but I find myself doing them. And the things that I want to do, I don't do. And it, it talks about the struggle within the flesh, and, and so that's kind of where we were is you, you get to the end of chapter 7 and you see Paul offer up this kind of declaration of, of despair. What a wretched man I am. Who's going to save me from this body that's subjected to death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And, and that's really kind of how chapter 7 ends. And we use that desperation and that sense of understanding the struggle with the flesh to launch into a month-long discussion of how do we handle doubt. And so we've, we've come to a completion on that discussion. Now we're going to go back to Romans chapter 8. And what you're going to see in Romans chapter 8 is that really when, when Paul sets up this war and the struggle with the flesh in chapter 7, he's anticipating where he's going in chapter 8, which is really living by the Spirit. Uh, as you get to the first part of chapter 8, so much of what we're going to talk about is life by the Spirit. And, and really, that's kind of what I want us to see as we uh, move forward to the end of this year, is the renewed life is a Spirit-filled and a Spirit-led life. Now, that sounds really good, but it's often kind of elusive for us. Like, what does that actually mean? What does that look like to have a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led life? And that's going to be something that Paul really, I think, explains in great detail over the next several weeks. What we're going to look at today in particular is that the Spirit-filled and Spirit-led life is a life that is marked by freedom. And in, in particular, what does it mean to live with that freedom that comes from the gospel? And so we're going to be in Romans 8 if you want to turn there. And as you're turning there, uh, part of what I want us to think through is getting our minds around this concept of freedom. Because it is a central theme to the gospel. 
it's a word that we hear a lot. And a lot of times when you think about the concept of freedom, we often associate it with something pretty grandiose and and, uh, pretty elaborate, like a a nation gaining its independence or uh, a prisoner that was wrongly accused being set free. And you get that picture of the Shawshank Redemption and all those different things. Like we we have these very dramatic and uh, very uh, pronounced demonstrations of freedom. But the reality is, is that we experience freedom to varying degrees on almost a daily basis or on a regular basis, maybe not a daily basis, but you can find freedom from uh, disease, you can find freedom from an addiction, freedom from an unhealthy relationship, freedom from a boring job, right? There are all these different ways that we experience freedom. And so I want us to kind of think about what are those moments, how does it feel when we experience freedom? Right, freedom in a very uh, simple definition is to be set free from anything that confines. Right, so those moments in life where we feel confined or restricted, and all of a sudden those those restrictions and that confinement is loosened, and we we experience freedom. How does that typically make you feel? How do people typically respond when they experience some level of freedom? I think you can see this especially in parenting. Right, if you think about parenting, parenting really is a long journey of giving slow and gradual doses of freedom to children, right? Little by little, they get more and more freedom as they get older, which means that when a child's born, they're essentially born into prison, right? If you think about it, like you, you come home with a little prisoner, and you're the warden, and they come home because you tell them what to eat, uh, what to, when to sleep, what to wear, like it is extreme confinement, and, and you are running a little prison in your house. And the reality is, is depending on how many children you have, often influences the level of security at that particular prison. Like firstborn children, they are born into maximum security level prisons. Am I right? Because those first time parents, man, we're watching every move. We're like following them around, making sure they don't fall, watching what they eat, getting the monitor. And we're like, yeah, I'm watching you breathe, making sure that you're okay still. It is maximum security restriction confinement. You get to about the third child, it goes from maximum security to more of like a correctional facility. You know, and you're just like, y'all just don't hurt each other, you know, and it's a little bit more hands-off, and the more and more children you have, the closer it gets to really like the inmates running the asylum. But I mean, that's, that's really how it works. And so parenting gives you a really good snapshot of what does it look like when you start to slowly remove confinement and restriction upon somebody and how they respond to freedom. Uh, children long for freedom. Uh, they're yearning for it. Uh, my, child, uh, my daughter, Annabelle, we were watching a movie not too long ago that was from the 80s. Uh, we like to show them some classics from our childhood. And it was this movie where there were these 12-year-old boys literally just roaming the streets of New York. And she was watching, and she goes, wait, where are their parents? And we were like, well, they're not there. They're just walking around without parents? And we were like, yeah, that's kind of how it was back then. And she goes, lucky, why don't we get to do that, you know? Children long for freedom. And when they get it, they tend to be really appreciative. I, I was trying to think of an example of this, and I kept coming back to the same one. When we were choosing the school, uh, uh, for James, we would go visit these different schools when he was getting ready for kindergarten, and his one focus was the lunchroom. Like, he was like, does it have a good cafeteria? Like, that was all he asked about, because he was so excited about going through the lunch line on his own. So I'll never forget that first week of school, we let him buy lunch, he goes through the lunch line, and then later that day, we're like, well, buddy, how was, how was going through the lunch line? He, he was like, oh, dad, I walked through that lunch line, I felt like I was 18 years old, man. Like, Freedom gives you joy, right? Like that's typically how you're, it's, it's a level of gratitude, but it gives you, it changes the way you live. And more often than not, the theme that you see when somebody is living a life of freedom is an expression of joy and confidence. And so if freedom is a central theme of the gospel, 
right? And if that's part of what Paul's going to explain to us in the first few verses here of chapter 8, that a spirit-filled, spirit-led life leads to freedom, then we need to see our freedom also lead us to that sort of lifestyle that expresses that joy and gratitude that can only come from those who truly understand what it means to be free. So I want us to dive into that in greater detail this morning. We'll do that by looking at these first four verses of Romans chapter 8. Paul's going to transition us here, and, and there's a lot to be said in these first four verses, but it's a great introduction for us as we move into a really powerful chapter. Picking up in verse one, here's what he says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free. That set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, uh, several things that we're gonna be able to extract from these first four verses. Now, one of the key ways to read the scripture, and you may have heard this before, but whenever you read the word therefore, you always ask yourself, what is the therefore therefore, right? Uh, and, and the idea is, what is Paul building upon? What is he pointing back to with this word in this transition to therefore? And what I want us to see as we go into this this morning is that this is pointing to more than just the end of chapter 7. Uh, this, this beginning of chapter 8 is not just building upon that final climactic remark where he's like, who's going to save me from this body of sin and death? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is, this is going all the way back to so much of what he has unpacked over the last several chapters, the part of what Paul is building on here as we go into chapter 8 is what we see declared in chapter 3, that there is a righteousness apart from the law that has been revealed, right? Chapters 4 and 5, that this is a righteousness that is lived by faith. Just as Abraham was justified by faith, so were we justified by faith in the blessings of that justified life, right? Chapter 6, that especially seeing that in the sense that we are dead to sin but made alive in Christ. Now, even though we are dead to sin and alive to Christ, chapter 7 says we're still going to struggle as long as we inhabit the flesh, which now leads us into chapter 8, uh, which is going to be life by the Spirit. But all of this is built upon everything that Paul has been unpacking for the last several chapters. Because of all those things, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an incredible opening statement. I mean, this is a crescendo almost in his letter. Because of all these things that have happened, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you think about how this unfolded in those first three chapters, this, this description of the human dilemma and the heart's propensity to choose to worship created things rather than the creator, and all the sinfulness that unfolds, all the godlessness and wickedness that is a part of the human condition, and you get to that moment in chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not one. The expectation should be condemnation. Like that's what the human condition deserves. Condemnation carries with it this idea of both verdict and execution. Right? The verdict is we are guilty and the execution is that we are deserving of death. Like, that's the reality. That's the consequence for our sin. That's where it should be. But because of all these things, we get to stand here today and say we are not condemned in Christ Jesus. What an incredible statement. And so part of what Paul is explaining is that the opposite of condemnation is justification, right? Justification is a way of saying you have been made right 
before God. Right? Though the human condition says there's separation from God, there's enmity between us and God, there's, there's strife, there's all this distance, there are all these problems, what you have seen in Christ is that God has made it right. You do not stand condemned, but rather you stand justified before God. So here's the point of verse one. Right? We have no chance of living a spirit-filled and spirit-led life if we don't understand what Christ has accomplished for us. Like if we don't understand that we actually stand right before God and have that assurance, we have no chance of really living that spirit-filled and spirit-led life that is marked by freedom. And I would tell you it's a common question. It's a common thing that people wrestle with on a regular basis. Throughout my ministry life, some of the common questions I get are people wrestling with the idea, can God really forgive me for my sins? Like, like, can he really accept me for who I am? So many people are resistant or struggle or, or hesitant to embrace the gospel because they carry too much shame, too much guilt. And so I want to ask you, is that you today? Like, like, if you're here today and there's a part of you that feels like you're still carrying around this weight of guilt... Hear the truth of verse one. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have to stand with that assurance that God has made things right if we're gonna live a spirit-filled and spirit-led life. And so that leads us into chapter, or excuse me, verse two, which is really the controlling verse of this opening paragraph, right, that explains a little bit how this condemnation has been set aside, what, what has actually taken place Verse two, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who, has, who gives life has set you free. He has set you free from the law of sin and death. Right, so the spirit-filled, spirit-led life is one that is marked by freedom. And that freedom comes from the spirit of God. And that's what creates this duality between chapters seven and eight. Uh, we can either live by the flesh or we can live by the spirit. And the spirit-filled, spirit-led life has set you free um, from the law of sin and death, and that's going to lead you towards this lifestyle of freedom. So when we think about the freedom that has been achieved for us through the Spirit of God, there are, there are a couple of key questions that these first four verse, verses allow us to ask and answer. Uh, we're going to ask ourselves, well, okay, to be set free from what? Um, how are we set free? And then what does that freedom actually look like? And those are the questions that we're going to seek to answer together this morning. And so verse 2 answers that first question for us. When you think about freedom, what have you been set free from? And you see it referenced right there. You've been set free from the law of sin and death. Now, you can really parse that out and break that out a little bit, and I want us to spend some time with it so that we really appreciate and understand the freedom that has been achieved for us in Christ Jesus. All right, so think about being set free from sin. Okay, when you think about sinfulness, again, you can go back to Romans chapter 1, and you can see this really um, uh, uh, elaborate description of what the sinful life looks like, right? That is built upon the human condition and our propensity to worship created things rather than the creator. And because we make that great exchange, what does it tell us in chapter one? Right, that, that godlessness and wickedness is on display, that the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness. You get to Romans one towards the end of it and there's this list of all these different sins. Let me just remind you of, of several of the ones that are mentioned. This is the sinful life, right? A life that leads to idolatry, sexual immorality, evil, greed, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, 
insolent, arrogant, boastful, invent ways of doing evil, disobedient to parents, no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Right? That's, that's a description of sinfulness, and it's not exhaustive, but it's pretty comprehensive. And this is what we've been set free from. And so let me explain to you how this resonates with me as I read through chapter 8. When, you, when you're reading through the book of Romans and you get to chapter 1 and you see a list like that, the initial response in my heart is one of conviction. Right? Like the list is so long and, and, and even then, uh, even though it's not comprehensive, we know there are others that are just like it, that ultimately you walk away from chapter 1 feeling that conviction that, yes, I am a sinner. Right? And I'm fully aware that I am a sinner. And it leads you to that level of desperation that kind of leads to that conclusion of chapter three. There's no one righteous, not even one. But what are the ramifications of that? Right, what are the ramifications of seeing ourselves as sinners? And part of what we're seeing is that Paul is trying to argue here for the believer, especially understanding the war with the flesh, that though there is this tension, the power of sin is not greater than the power of the spirit. Can I say that again? The power of sin is not greater than the power of the Spirit. And so what chapter 8 does is is build upon what you kind of understand in chapter 1. Chapter 1, okay, I'm convicted, I acknowledge it, but chapter 8 tells me I can actually be victorious over it. That there is a, a power at work within us through the Spirit of God that sets us free from the power of sin. See, part of what can happen is that we begin to fall into complacency as believers, right? So, so all of a sudden, we just kind of embrace our identity as sinners or certain sinful behaviors, or we, we just grow to accept it through others, and we just kind of resign ourselves to the fact where we say to ourselves, well, this is just kind of who I am. I just, I struggle with anger, right? I struggle with lust. I struggle with greed. I struggle with insecurities. I struggle with depression. I struggle, and and all of a sudden we just embrace the identity, and and as a result then, we, we use it in many ways to rationalize a lifestyle that stays in sin, right? And we, we essentially believe we can't actually become victorious over it, that there's really no way to, to overcome it. The flesh is too strong, and what Paul is saying is that no, the power of the Spirit is far stronger, right? And so you've been set free from your sin. You don't have to live in it. You're going to battle, yes, until Jesus returns, but we must never resign ourselves to the idea or get so complacent to just embrace it and rationalize it and continue to live in it, right? Essentially, what that would be like is imagine being in prison and the prison door is flinging wide open, the guards going home, the doors being unlocked, and you stay in your cell. And so many of us choose to do that. Like we, we just, the freedom is right there in front of us and we refuse to take it. The spirit of the living God has set us free from sin. Set us free from the law as well. Uh, we've gone into great detail trying to explain the way the law works uh, with, with what Paul is saying in the book of Romans. You can go back and look at a lot of those messages, especially the ones in chapter 7. So I'm not going to go into all that detail again, but a little bit of a review is that part of what he is saying here is that you've been set free from this this works-based righteousness, right? That'd be my summary, right? That what had fallen uh, to the Jews was this idea that because they had received the law, they were God's chosen people, they, they were 
privileged in a lot of respects, and as a result, they were going to get their righteousness just by adhering towards that identity and to following the law. And so there was a certain workspace mentality, right? For them, believing in God was about morality. It was about moralism. It was about adhering, adhering to all those different laws. And, and what happened as a result was that time uh, progressed to where they built in all these different traditions that essentially allowed them to be lords of their own morality, right? It allowed them to essentially evaluate their own righteousness and to say, yeah, we, we've honored the Sabbath in this way. We've prayed this many times a day. And they had all these different rules that they could adhere to so that they could kind of predetermine and self-determine their own righteousness, which then ultimately led to self-deception, right? So, so that's the same problem that we can fall victim to. Right, that, that essentially we will fall into this works-based idea that if we're moral enough or good enough that that's gonna earn God's favor. And when we fall into that idea, what are we gonna wanna do? We're gonna wanna control our own morality. Right, we're gonna wanna be able to determine what we think is right or wrong. We're gonna create a self-lordship mindset so that we can declare ourselves as righteous, right, that we can excuse our behavior, whatever it needs to look like, and ultimately that leads to self-deception. And so one of the ways to evaluate if you have really been set free from the law is how are you shaping your understanding of morality, right? Like if you're, if you're creating it on your own um, ideas, your own feelings, what the world is telling you so that you can move it and make it whatever you need it to be so that you can declare yourself as righteous, then you're, you're really still living by some moral-based, works-based idea. But if we thirst for God's truth and we seek to to fulfill it, not because we feel like that's the only way we're gonna become, uh, become righteous, but because it is a response of devotion to him, well, that is an expression of being set free from this idea of moralism where we get into self-lordship and self-deception. You've been set free from the burden of thinking that you can earn your way and work your way to God's favor, right? And you've set yourself free from the potential of self-deception. So, so you have freedom from sin, you have freedom from the law, and then you have freedom from death. Now, this one's really remarkable. I mean, uh, ultimately, the, the most, uh, I guess, powerful uh, demonstration of sin's weight, of sin's consequence is death, right? The, the ultimate blow of sin is death. That's where it yield, wields its, its most uh, powerful demonstration of its weight and its significance in our lives is that we are all victims to death, right? And so what, what now we see is that through Jesus and through his spirit, we're set free not just from sin and not just from the law, but even death itself through the resurrected Christ. And so that, that allows us to be unlike any other people on the planet to go into life without the fear of death. And we talk about this all the time. Like we, we talk about what it means to have everlasting life. We sing about no fear in death. But I'm curious, do you really believe it? Like, have you ever really kind of evaluated your view on death and what your response to it would be? Like, essentially what this passage is saying is that we should be fearless in the face of death. And so let me just ask you a very point-blank question. Are you afraid of dying? Like, have you ever really wrestled with that? Probably not. It's a little morbid. A lot of us are kind of like, oh, I don't want to go there. And understandably, right? So a lot of times we just push it aside so we never really get a chance to evaluate our response to it. But are you afraid of dying? And if so, why? Like, where do those fears come from? I think sometimes we have concerns about how we might die. 
like the unknown, the suddenness, the pain that might be associated, like those are, those are natural concerns and human questions, but like are you truly afraid of dying? See, one of the most compelling aspects to the gospel, and I can tell you, um, after being a minister for about 13 years or so, some of the most inspiring moments that I've ever seen is when I come alongside a believer who is in the final chapters of their life, and they are fearless. It's incredible, right? It is, it is incredible to see someone come face to face with death and meet it with joy and freedom. And that's what the gospel does. That's what a spirit-filled, spirit-led life of freedom does. There is no fear in death, right? Nothing can come your way. No threat, no apprehension, no concern can come your way when you've truly been set free by the gospel, right? So this is what we've been set free from. The idea that we have to continue to fall victim to sin, the idea that we have to succumb to some sort of works-based morality, the idea of even being fearful of death, we've been set free from all those things. It's such a remarkable truth, you've got to ask yourself, how? How is that possible? How is such a freedom attainable? And that's really what verses three and four explain for us, okay? So let me just summarize and work through verses three and four. You can follow along with me again. You pick back up in verse three. Uh, How is all of this freedom possible? What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. Let me remind you of chapter 7. Chapter 7 tells us that the law is good, spiritual, and holy. Right? So, so the law in and of itself is good. Right? Like it, it shows us God's will. It shows us who he is. It was, it was intended for something good. But it was powerless. Why? Because our flesh was weak. It was impossible for us to keep all the rules, as Martha was explaining earlier. All it really did was awaken us to our own weakness, our own inability, and our own sinfulness, right? So what what the law intended to do, but was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did, right? So how are we set free? It is not by the law, it is by God. What did God do? God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So God responds, right? God who is rich in mercy, he sends his one and only son. This is God in the flesh coming and dwelling among us, being made in the likeness of sinful flesh, right? Again, this is key doctrinal stuff, right? That Jesus is fully man and fully God. He was in the sinful flesh. He is the fullness of the deity in bodily form, as Paul says it in Colossians, right? That is so important to understand how this works. So God sends Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh, so that he identifies with us in our weakness. He understands the propensities towards sinfulness. And then God makes him what? Makes him a sin offering. This is pointing to a sacrifice. Let us be very clear. Sin has to be atoned for. And so by Jesus offering his life on the cross, shedding his blood that washes us from all of our guilty stains, that is how we are set free. Right? He makes him a sin offering. It is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, what does he do? He doesn't condemn us. Rather, he condemns sin in the flesh. So sin is what get, gets conquered. Sin is what is condemned in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law, what the law was intended to do, 
like what it initially was set out to do, might now be fully met in us. Not because we're able to, not because of our works, but because of the grace that has been shown us through Jesus Christ and the spirit that gives life for those who do not live according to the flesh, but live according to the spirit. Right, so, so if we were to summarize all of that, verses three and four, how is this possible? It's only made possible through Christ. That's it. You want a spirit-filled, spirit-led life of freedom, which I think every heart longs for. Right, if you think about it, that's what all of us are really pursuing to a certain extent. The problem is, is that too often we deceive ourselves thinking that that freedom, that fulfillment is gonna be found in other things. So we'll give our whole lives to a career. We'll give our whole lives to a family. We'll give our whole lives to some sort of passion or purpose and none of it is actually going to set you free. You can acquire more wealth than you could have ever imagined and it won't set you free. You can have the best family, like the most incredible family and relationships and it's not going to save you. You, you could have the best job, the most glamorous career, and it's not going to give you the freedom that your heart desires. There is one thing that saves us, and it's Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we are set free. And that's what Paul explains there in verses 3 and 4, and how it is done through his death as an atoning sacrifice to condemn sin in the flesh so that we might be able to fulfill what the law was initially intended to do, not by living according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's how it's done. Now, with all that being said, I want to transition us towards a conclusion here by thinking about these first four verses and saying, okay, that's what it does. It set us free from the law of sin and death. That's how it's been accomplished. But I want us to leave here today with at least some consideration to what does it look like? Like, what does a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led life that is marked by freedom actually look like? And, and to help, uh, I guess, answer that question, I'm going to pair Romans 8, 1 through 4 with Galatians, uh, not Galatians, no, it is Galatians, Galatians 5, 13. Okay, and Galatians 5, 13 uh, is very simple. It's a very short verse here uh, that to me, again, we could, we could go in a lot of different directions to exhaust all, all the ways that you could really um, describe a life of freedom, right? You could go to the fruits of the Spirit. You could go to a number of New Testament passages. But this one says it very concisely and at least gives us an initial picture this morning. Galatians 5.13 says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. All right, so that's the other thing I want us to, to consider real quick is that it's not just that you've been offered freedom. You were called to be free. Like you're designed for it. It's what he wants us to experience. He has called us into freedom now, what does it look like? Do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. All right, that's a really important statement because a lot of times when we think about freedom, we, we recognize that freedom can be abused. It can be misused. And so Galatians 5.13 explains it really well, especially in comparison to chapter 7 of, of Romans. Do not use this freedom to indulge in the flesh. It doesn't mean you just get to do whatever you want to and presume upon God's grace and presume upon God's mercy, right? But rather, serve one another humbly in love. All right, let me just break that down for a little bit and then we'll add one more to conclude us. But a life that is filled by the Spirit, that is led by the Spirit and is marked by freedom is one that's gonna serve others. Now, that's pretty remarkable when you think about it because a lot of times freedom uh, implies that, that you uh, don't have to serve. 
right? Oftentimes, uh, servanthood is tied to obligation and a lack of freedom. But what makes this freedom so remarkable is that it actually drives us into servanthood rather than away from it. But it's now servanthood that is not rooted in obligation, but by choice, right? It is now rooted in devotion, right? So, so a spirit-filled, spirit-led life of freedom is not going to lead you towards isolation. It's going to move you into the lives of others so that you can serve them well. Right? It's going to lead you into this life of servanthood and being able to see people's needs above your own. Right? And so when you think about that, then you should ask yourself this question, who am I serving in my life right now? Like, who, who do I find myself wanting to serve? Not so that I get something back, not out of obligation, but because my heart is compelled to do so. Right? That's the mark of a spirit-filled, spirit-led life. It's one that is led by servanthood. And it's a servanthood that, that comes with humility, right? This is another really interesting piece of freedom, right? Is that the pages of history are filled with numerous examples of people that use freedom to, to really accomplish superiority and, and to look down upon others. People uh, use uh, freedom to exploit others, right? It's the free class that dominates the slave class. So a lot of times people will take freedom to, to actually create a sense of pride, to create a sense of entitlement, to create a sense of exploitation. But in the gospel, freedom leads you to a place of humility. The way Philippians 2 says it is that you should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather you should always look to the interests of others, right, rather than just to yourself, right? And so what that tells us is that when the Spirit of God begins to lead us and it gives us this freedom, we don't use that freedom for exploitation, trying to lead and dominate others. We actually see others' needs more than ourselves. And, and we look to those needs and we approach it with a spirit of humility. So you need to ask, not only who is in my life that I'm serving, but also do I approach that servanthood with humility, truly seeing other people's needs genuinely and sincerely ahead of my own. And all of this leads to love. Right, serving one another humbly in love. I mean, this is the essence of the spirit-filled life, is a life that is overflowing with love. And we could go through this time and time again, right? The fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, love leads that list. You could go to the greatest commandment with Jesus. How is it that we should, uh, what is the greatest commandment? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You could go to Paul, 1 Corinthians 13. These three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And even as Galatians 5 finishes out there, right, that, that the commandments are summed up in all this, love one another. Right, that's how all these things are fulfilled. Right, it all leads to love. And we talk about that all the time, that we want to be people who demonstrate a radical and unyielding love to the neighbor. And so ask yourselves, and do I have that sort of of humble, servant-hearted love. What, what this really points to is that love is most expressed not when it is self-seeking, but when it is sacrificial. And so are you demonstrating a sacrificial love in your life? And that is, that is the mark of a spirit-filled, spirit-led life that points to freedom. So there, there are a lot of other things that we could point to, right? A lot of other characteristics that we could utilize today. But here's where I want to close this as we prepare um, for the Lord's Supper this morning. Is that when you think about Galatians 5.13 paired with Romans 8, 1 through 4, uh, to me, really what this kind of points back to 
is uh, one of the greatest aspects of what it truly means to be free, is that people that demonstrate a true sense of freedom are able, dem- are able to demonstrate it in such a way that shows you that nothing can ever really take it away. Right? And the reason nothing can ever really be taken away when you truly live uh, according to the spirit-filled and spirit-led life of freedom is because it's tethered to an, an amazing hope. Right? That implicit in understanding what has been accomplished through Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice, his sin offering, is understanding essentially that this leads to not just a death but a resurrection. Right, that, that we are tied to a hope of a resurrected life, and that can never be taken from you. Right, so no matter the hardship, no matter the pain, no matter the struggle, we know that the ultimate call is towards a resurrected life. And nothing can take that from us. Nothing can cheapen it, nothing can shorten it. And so that means even if you live in the greatest level of oppression and persecution imaginable, you can still be free. Because nothing takes away that hope. And that's part of what Paul is, is trying to encourage the readers and us to hear and experience today. Nothing touches that hope. So what we gather here to celebrate, what we gather here to sing about, is to know it's not just that you get to overcome anger, In sinfulness, it's not just that you get to serve one another humbly in love. It's that we get to anticipate resurrected life. And as a result, we are always free. And the Spirit of God reminds us of that truth day after day after day. And when your loving Father has given you that sort of freedom, How could our response be anything but joy? Gratitude. No matter what we face because of what we anticipate, because of a hope that never perishes, spoils, or fades. Do you have that hope this morning, church? Do you have that joy that's connected to that hope? Do you have that ability to walk through life knowing you've been set free from sin and the law of death? Do you have that understanding of how it has taken place, that it is not by anything you have done or anything you can pursue or anything that you could ever achieve, but only for those who are in Christ. And that if you give your heart to him today, if you trust him today with that sort of devotion, that it will give you that freedom that allows you to find joy in all circumstances because of the hope of a resurrected life. That's what I want us to celebrate this morning. That's what I want us to respond to. Here's how we're going to do it. Um, We're going to spend some time Uh, here in a moment, uh, to gather together and to share in communion with one another. And a lot of times, when we prepare to join each other at the Lord's table, we do so with a spirit that is often solemn and uh, reflective and contemplative, all of which is very appropriate and and should still be held um, in one hand this morning, right? Because the scriptures tell us to examine ourselves thoroughly whenever we prepare to share in the Lord's Supper together. So you want to do that. But a lot of times we lose the sense of joy as well, right? We, we lose uh, the sense that, that when we share in the broken body of Christ, that is the broken body of Christ that has set you free. That the blood of the new covenant is what has been accomplished for you so that you can have this hope that never perishes, spoils, or fades. And so when we gather together this morning, church, around this table, I want us to do so with a spirit of joy. 
understanding the fullness of what it has accomplished for us. Letting the Spirit of God come in and minister to your heart and your soul and your mind and remind you of what has been done for you through Jesus. Right, that we can gather together around this table truly in that Spirit-filled, Spirit-led way, understanding the freedom that has been offered to us through Christ. And that when we sing, we can truly embrace the truth of understanding that the grace of God has reached for us because God sent his own son to us. And it has pulled us out of the muck, out of the mire, out of the raging seas that so easily tossed us to and fro and has given us a solid foundation that we can build our lives upon. And that we can declare to one another today in that spirit of freedom and that spirit of joy that there is no one like our God and that he and he alone is our salvation. Let us prepare our hearts to celebrate accordingly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all that has been accomplished for us in Christ. God, we think about the significance of these words, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And God, I pray that that truth would just soak into our heart and our soul and our mind this morning in a way that, that elicits incredible joy because we understand the freedom that has been achieved for us by the gift of the cross and the empty tomb. And so God, as we prepare to come before your table today and to share in these elements, we ask that you would once again minister to us in a way that only you can, speak to us in a way that only you can, and help us respond with joyful praise for the freedom that has been offered to us in Christ. We thank you, Father. For all that you have done, may we now celebrate it in the spirit and in truth and to your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. I'm going to offer some instructions for you this morning as we prepare to share in these elements together. I'm going to ask the deacons uh, who have made themselves available to pray this morning to come forward uh, to the altar. Please bring your elements with you so that you can... Uh, take them along with us when we give the instructions. But we're going to have deacons up front that are available to pray for you during this time. We're going to sing uh, the first few verses of a song that reminds us of these truths. You're going to be able to stay seated and just reflect personally in that spirit of joy for what God has done for you. Um, and then after we've sung a few verses, I'll come back up here and give you some instructions for us to follow uh, along with the scriptures and sharing these elements together. And then we'll stand and sing as a part of our response today. And so here's what I would tell you. Um, obviously, I don't know where, where all of you are in your spiritual walk. Um, here's what I know. All of you need prayer. Uh, all of us do. And so maybe that's prayer of solitude right now where you just come before the Lord in confession but also joyful uh, response to what he's done for you in Christ. Maybe you need to come forward and be prayed over. And, and I would encourage that. Maybe you've never really trusted Christ as Savior. I don't want to assume that just because you've maybe stumbled into church today that you really understand what Jesus has done for you. And so maybe you're at a place where you have finally recognized, man, you've been carrying guilt and shame for far too long. And the message that there is no condemnation is speaking directly to your heart this morning. And if you feel that stirring, what you do is you, you respond to it. You come forward and you tell someone that can pray with you and you ask Jesus to take away that sin, take away that guilt, and embrace this promise of not being condemned because of his cross and because of his resurrection. And you say, I'm gonna follow you as Lord. Man, even if that's a prayer that you've prayed years and years ago, 
or you've never prayed it before, pray it today. And let the spirit of freedom well up within you. And let's give him the glory that he so richly deserves. So assume that posture, church. Let's enter into a time of prayer. If you want to sing, you can sing. If you want to pray, you can pray. But let us do it all in a spirit of joy. Let's worship together. solid ground the Lord is my salvation I will not fear when darkness falls His strength will help me scale these walls. I'll see the dawn of the rising sun. The Lord is my salvation. Who is like the Lord, our God, strong to
key moment of remembrance together this morning. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. And whenever we are to eat of this bread, we are to do so in remembrance of him. And as you do so this morning, also hear those instructions accompanied with what we've heard from Romans 8.1. That as we eat in the broken body of Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Take and eat. as well. And that in the same way on that night where they shared in this meal together, Jesus took the cup saying, this is my blood poured out for you, the blood of a new covenant. And again, whenever you drink of this cup, you're to do so in remembrance of me. And we are to share in this meal together reminding one another and proclaiming the Lord's death until it returns. And again, when we share in this cup this morning, church, let us do so not just in remembrance, but with this promise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Take and drink. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this freedom. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your truth. Let us declare once again to one another as we share in this meal together this morning that there is no one like you, that you are our salvation. And we give all that we are to you, Father. Let us live according to your spirit, according to your truth, and demonstrate that Christ indeed has set us free. Let us respond with joyful praise and give you all the glory that you so richly deserve. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.